I will give you a tamale that you will love. Okay. Let us continue. Birthday of the church, day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes and he indwells people. And you remember the scene where people are speaking in languages. <laughs> oh, wait, I can see it. Let me see if I can move it. Oh, that was my video of the fake players in the background. You can see, or the fake fans. You see them? See the fake fans? It's a display that makes it look like they're actually there. It's crazy. Bizarre, bizarre. Okay, okay, don't pay attention anymore. We're coming back. Day of Pentecost. One of the things that you should know is that as the church is referred to throughout the scriptures, um, the, the way that we work together is defined in a lot of different ways. You've heard the body of Christ, the, the family of God, God's house, God's temple. The idea here is that the church that God builds starting at the day of Pentecost is so intricately connected, intrinsically connected, that it is impossible to pull it apart individually in the sense that it's not meant to be done as an individual sport. You can't be a Christian by yourself, just like you couldn't play baseball by yourself. You couldn't be the pitcher in the first base and the shortstop and all that. In the Christian church, there's no such thing as someone who operates individually apart from the church that God has designed. And so with all that said, in Acts chapter 2, what you have is God's display of power where he begins the church brand new. Day of Pentecost, the church is born. And in this particular season of life, you see the church do something incredibly amazing. They speak in tongues. God gives them the ability to speak languages they never before spoke. God allows them now to preach the gospel and thousands get saved. This is now the brand new church. We're looking at these people that just got saved after Peter preached. And now we get a chance to look at what the early church looked like and what we should be like consequently. Now, let me offer just one caveat here. Just because they're the early church doesn't mean that everything they do that we should do. And I'll, think, I'll try to make that clear as we move along. But uh, one of the things I want to point out is that not everything was good back in the early church. Sometimes people look back at the beginning of the church and say, man, it must have been amazing to be part of this church. And while well, it would have been, not everything is rosy posy. Not everything's amazing. But this part that we're going to pay attention to today is going to show us just what it looks like to be a community of faith. Take a look here. The first two verses say this. Notice the first word. Well, the first, the third word. Uh, they were devoted. And they, these new converts, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe, the word is phobos, fear, fear, awe, the, the sense of astonishment came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Well, we're going we're gonna to break this down. This really is a good summary verse for the entire section. But one of the things I want you to see here, as I already pointed out, is the fact that these new converts didn't need anybody to prod them and say, oh, man, you guys got to be here. They wanted to be part of the family. They wanted to be connected together. And so the first word that I pointed out to you was devoted. They were committed to these people and to this new congregation. One of the things that are, is going to make us a good team, a good family, a good body, a good temple of God is a commitment that is the foundation of everything else that we build upon. I said it like this in point number one, I want you to prioritize your church life. Make it something that you are devoted to. That word devoted is a strong word, isn't it? Devoted. 
it's a word that we often don't use because there's really not a lot of things that we'd say we're devoted to. You might be a devoted fan of a certain uh, series on TV. Maybe you're devoted to TikTok or making videos. That you may not use it of yourself very often, but here's the thing. Here's why this word is special. That word carries with it a certain heaviness. There's a commitment on the inside of you that says, no matter what, I'm giving this my all. You may not know the name of this guy, but Ronnie Lott is a football player. I love sports. As you guys should know that. I love sports. He's a football player. And back in the 80s, this guy was so committed to his team and so committed to his craft that during a play, during a play, he crushed his finger when he was tackling somebody. It was so crushed that the only way to fix it would be a bone graft. And so Ronnie Lott did the one thing that no one expected him to do. Instead of getting the bone graft and thus taking himself out of the season, you know what he did? He cut it off. <laughs> he had it amputated. Now, I mean, as you look at his pinky, it's not a lie. I mean, maybe a quarter of an inch, an inch maybe at the most. But pull up your fi finger right now, pull up your pinky, and ask yourself if you'd be willing to do without your little pinky. That's commitment. That's devotion. Ronnie Lott is willing to go without his pinky in order to play the game that he loves and be devoted to the team that he's so behind. I don't know what team he was playing for at this point, but he was devoted. Some of us are willing or unwilling to give up a lot less for something far more important than a football game. When it comes to the church, I'm not asking you to chop off your pinky to be here, but I am saying that what I think Scripture is pointing you to is that you need to have the church to be a thorough part of your life. It's so interesting, at the beginning of the building of the church, what you see immediately is that these people were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and the prayers, fellowship. They were devoted to these things because they saw how they intrinsically were special. They were necessary to their life and to their faith. In fact, let's work through a couple of those things. Here, here's the thing. Uh, I, I'd, rather, uh, I'd rather encourage you instead of try to shame you on this. And here's how I'm going to do that. I want to help you see your need for what the church provides. I want to help you see your need for what the church provides. Here's the thing. You need to prioritize your church life because first and foremost, you need God's truth. And that's what these people devote themselves to. It says they, they devoted themselves to, the first thing, the apostles' teaching, God's agents of revelation. These were the guys that God entrusted to display his new covenant promises, his new covenant gospel, and he, let the, he used them to write down words of scripture. Now, here's the thing. The very first thing, or not the very first, the last thing Jesus says before he leaves. Remember this? He says, okay, I'm leaving, and now I'm going to put you guys in charge of doing something. I'm going to give you a great job to do. We often call it the Great Commission, right? He says, I want you to do what? Call it out. Make disciples. Go to all the world. Make disciples. What's a disciple? It's a learner. A disciple's a learner. Someone who is a student, essentially, a, a disciple's a student, someone who's learning at the feet of Jesus. In this case, the apostles' teaching, but the apostles are teaching what Jesus gave them. So you need to know God's truth. Why? It should be obvious that today is one of those days and age where philosophy permeates everything. You had the Democratic National Convention last week. You have the Republican National Convention this week. And now you have competing, not just uh, arguments, but competing philosophies for what life is truly about. I mean, we, we've been talking about it a lot lately because I've been reading about it in the news all the time, but think about BLM and all that that stands for. Uh, think about uh, what you just saw, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders' platform, social, uh, social, uh, democratic socialism. 
You might have heard the term social Marxism. Uh, you, you might have heard uh, people bloviate on certain political ideologies that are fundamentally at odds with the Christian faith. And here's the thing. You need wisdom. You need God's truth to help you work through that. Uh, the only way that you're going to make sense of this is if you're viewing all of these things through the biblical filter of Scripture. Otherwise, here's my fear for you, and here's my fear even for some Christians who don't know any better. You're going to be uh, caught by every wind of doctrine that is taught by not just Christians, but anybody. When you start throwing out terms like justice and mercy and equity, it's easy for a Christian to say, oh, I get that. I know that word. I like that word. That's a positive word in scripture. Mercy, equality, that sounds a little bit like God making everyone in his image. Those are things that are attracted to me because I'm a Christian and those are terms that I like. However, the problem with that is that those terms are being hijacked and given new meaning that the Bible does not ascribe. And so your job as a Christian is to ask yourself, okay, is there anything in scripture that helps me understand what these terms mean so that I might apply them rightly? You need scripture now more than ever. You need to know what scripture has to say about work and whether or not it is right to continually pay people not to work. You need to know what scripture says about the, uh, the nature of mankind why do black people matter? Why do black lives matter? Why, do, why does anyone's life matter for that matter? And, and why is black lives matter only a political charged cause right now that doesn't seem to apply to the black baby lives? Those are the kind of inconsistencies that one would think about as you consider what's being taught to you. You might have seen the shooting that happened not too long ago, yesterday in Wisconsin, with a guy that was heading back to his car and uh, resisting arrest, and he was shot seven times. Of course, the news cycle says, well, here you go again. Those officers are being unjust and they're trying to exterminate black people because they are prejudiced and they're racists. However, that happened in one day. Judgments were made, but now today we find out that there's more to the story than what meets the eye. How is a Christian supposed to work through these things? Well, I'll tell you, you need to know what God's word says. This is like knowing the playbook. This is knowing how to cross the finish line. This is knowing how to score as a Christian. How do we win? Well, we gotta know what God's playbook is. You need to know the truth. Not only that, but you also need to know God's people. You need to prioritize your church life because you need to know God's people. God's people are such, here's the thing. So many times I, I think we see fellowship and, and small group time or even just going to church events as, as an obligation, a duty to be fulfilled rather than a privilege to be enjoyed. What we have, guys, is something special. The word fellowship, the word fellowship is used 19 times in the New Testament. It's the word that all of you guys know, koinonia, koinonia. Uh, and variations of the word are used more frequently, but koinonia is used 19 times, and it means sharing. It means participation. It means partnership. There's a, a camaraderie. We're linking arms together. Now, here's the beauty about this. Our fellowship, our, uh, our, our lateral fellowship, is derivative of our vertical fellowship. Our lateral fellowship is a derivative of our vertical fellowship. To say it differently, because we're united to God, we're united with one another. Now, let me help you understand this uniting with God. It's the foundation of our, again, lateral fellowship. See if you can catch where I'm going with this. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so this isn't surprising to us. We have fellowship with Jesus Christ, the son of God, the one who lived and died on this earth is the one that we get to have fellowship, participation, sharing with. But it gets better. 
Take a look at this next verse here. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Paul says the grace, and this is his closing part of his letter. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and love of God and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go because then I'm going to send you the helper to be with you and to be in you. Not only do you have fellowship with the Son of God, the one who came to earth and lived and died, but we also have fellowship with a third member of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit. In some mysterious way, if you're a Christian, you have the eternal Spirit of God living and operating in and through you. And of course, by this point, I think it might be obvious. Here's 1 John 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. You have been brought into an, a relationship that is unfathomable. You brought, you've been brought into the triune relationship. You've been brought to enjoy God in all of his fullness which can never be exhausted. You, if, are, if you are a Christian, you are now in some way grafted into God's relational being. You are united and you are now fellowshipping with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This ought to rock your world. You have fellowship. You've been brought into that relationship. And now, because of that relationship, you and I now are brought together as brothers and sisters, part of that family. We are now enjoying the sweet fellowship of one anotherness. And God says, when you're brought into his family, guess what? You're brought into the family. You're brought into a family of believers that are you're now responsible and accountable to and for. You need God's truth. You need God's people. You also need God's help. And what, of course, what I mean by that, the, the early disciples, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. I'll just be brief on this because I think you get this. This is when we're talking to the coach. Uh, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're learning the playbook and we learn God's word. We're uh, spending time together as a team and now we're talking to the coach. When we pray together, it's us sending out uh, messages to the coach saying, coach, what do you want us to do? Coach, we need your help. Coach, we need your encouragement. Coach, we need your fulfillment. We need you to help us do what you want us to do. And so that prayer time uh, in, in church life is something that really unites us in a way that Jesus prayed for. And in fact, Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. He says, Father, I want them to be one even as we are one. And so when we pray together corporately, we are fulfilling Jesus' prayer request to be united in a special way. And again, because we're related and we're united to the Trinity, we're working out what is spiritually true about us. We are physically practicing what is spiritually ultimately true about us, namely that we are partakers of the divine nature, Peter says. Not that we're becoming God, but that we enjoy the sweetest, closest, most intimate fellowship that is possible because of our union with God himself. We're practicing that. We're living it out as we pray together corporately. This all presupposes, these three things that we're talking through, presupposes that we have a healthy, dynamic team. Let me show you what these, these team members, how they treated one another. Take a look at verses 44 and 45 with me here. They were devoted to the teaching. They were devoted to one another. They devoted to prayer. And then, verses 44 and 45, and all who believed, they were together. And they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all 
as any had need. Man, this is so cool because what you see here is a type of selflessness that is supernatural for sure. There's, there, I don't see this very often. But this is how the church initially began. Everyone's saying, oh, you need something? No problem. I'll, I'll sell the shirt off my back so that you have something. You need to get a ride to school here. Take my camel. You can take my camel. It's all yours. You, you do what you need to do. The church is experiencing something that God did within them. God's generosity poured out to them resulted in their generosity poured out to everybody else. And in a sense, they became, uh, they became debtors to God, saying, I don't owe anything, God. God, you own my life. You own my money. You own my camel. It's all yours. Whatever I can do to be a blessing to your church, so be it. Point number two, I put it like this really simply. You and I ought to demonstrate some of this by caring about the needs of Christians. If we're going to be part of the team, if you've been drafted to the Lakers, you ought to care about your co-Laker players. If you've been brought onto the new dance team, you ought to care about your other dancers, if you're, especially if you're a group dance crew. All of that matters. How every person is doing matters. Uh, I was watching a documentary, a bleeped out version of the documentary that Michael Jordan was part of. You heard that, the, the one on ESPN? Forget the name of it, but the Michael Jordan documentary. More than a game. No, The Last Dance. Last Dance. That's the one. Fascinating. I found out that Michael Jordan is actually not a great teamsman. <laughs> he is, however, a great leader of a team because he will whip you and cajole you into doing your best because he wants to win games. It's not the kind of team player that we're talking about here. This is not the kind of person that whips you into shape to say, you can do better, do better, work harder. This is the kind of leader that Christ is for us when he says, I will die so that you will do better. I will die on your behalf so that you will be benefited. And that's why the idea of servant leader is so popular right now because we get that from Jesus. We recognize that people that are willing to lead us through their sacrifice are people that are really worthy of our respect. That's the kind of care that we ought to have for one another. I read, a, I read an article recently about a term that you guys might be familiar with. If I said to you or if I posted something and I said, I had pasta tonight, would that trigger anything on your side? I had pasta tonight. No. Maybe some of you don't know this, and that'd be okay. I'd probably prefer that. There are some times when code language is used in order to convey things so that most people wouldn't get it and other people would. Apparently, there was a trend, and I'm not sure how popular it is right now. I just know that at some point it was. I found several articles confirming this, that these, this terminology was used to convey, hey, I'm thinking about harming myself in some way. And so if you saw someone say this on TikTok, I had pasta tonight or tag it, uh, you're supposed to be affirmed by your community to say, hey, please don't do this. Don't kill yourself. Don't hurt yourself. We love you. We think you're amazing. I think, you know, that's interesting. You're crying for help in a way that you're hoping people will recognize, but you're doing it in such a way that it's a veiled cry for help. And how much should we care about that? We should absolutely care about these people who are desperate and they're hurting, but how much more so in the church? How much more so should we care about people that are crying for help? In fact, the news is saying lately that because of COVID and because everyone's locked in their houses right now in, very, in various ways, that people are more depressed and more anxious than they've ever been. And that suicide rates are up because uh, everyone's depressed because they're not allowed to go outside and they're not allowed to go to school and on and on it goes. We should care about these things. We should care about these things. But we should especially all the more so care when it comes to fellow Christians. Look at this. Did it change? Mine didn't change. Did it change? No, it did. Oh, there it goes. See, okay, the light. All these believers were together, had all things in common. Let me show you what we all need, first of all. We need, we need help, but let me show you what we all need, first of all. We need physical togetherness. 
what you're experiencing right now, guys, I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad you're here. I am honestly warmed in my cold conservative heart that you guys are here and that you are physically together because we need this. Uh, we are embodied spirits. God made us physical creatures. God designed us to have communion with one another. Uh, and and here's, here's, a, here's a spattering of verses that can help affirm that. 3 John 14, I hope to see you soon and we will all talk face to face. 2 John 12, though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that, why? Our joy may be complete. There is a special sweetness of being in person. I think that you guys know this all the more because of your Zoom relationships or your FaceTime groups or whatever else. That's nice. It's a, it's a decent substitute, but not a good substitute, right? Am I saying anything that you would disagree with? Probably not. Scripture is saying, yes, this is, this is absolutely true. You were made to be in communion with one another. You were made to have this kind of fellowship in person, in bodily form. You may not know this. <laughs> You may not know this, but there are several verses in Scripture that tell you to do something that I've not seen any of you do. You ready for this? You're supposed to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I put a girl kissing a dog because it's not the kind of kiss that some of you are hoping for. I don't want to see that kind of kissing. Greeting one another with a holy kiss is in Scripture, and here's the idea. It's to be warmly affectionate with people that you are in a, a relationship with, uh, in, in the church relationship. Guys have the bro hug, and that's cool. You know that thing where you do the thing and the thing. <laughs> Girls, you, you guys have your own thing. <laughs> Get all giddy and giggly. But the point is, whether it's a giggly hug or whether it's the bro hug, the point is to convey warm affection. Why? Because we need that physical proximity. And there's science that points to us now all the benefits that happen when you are physically close to somebody. Like your body produces chemicals that tell you, yes, this is good. Do more of this. And it's so funny because like, well, scripture has been saying this for so long. And now that there's bodily chemical reactions that are taking place, it's like, well, I guess this is a good thing for us. Well, no, duh. The Bible told us this. You are meant to be in physical proximity with one another in ways that are warmly affectionate, which makes total sense, right? Because the greatest relationship you can have in this life is a husband and wife relationship, which is the most physically intimate. It makes sense. God made us this way. We all need physical togetherness. That's what the church was doing. They were together. They were together. They had all things in common, which means they also had an attitude of generosity. These people were very generous with one another. And it wasn't just a matter of saying, well, I have this money or that money. There was the attitude that permeated the community. Their teamwork was a matter of whatever the team needs, I'm willing to give if I have it. In fact, one early uh, Christian theologian said this, uh, we are one in mind and soul. We do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are in common among us, but our wives. That was a first century Christian born about the 160s. His name is Tertullian. So one of the things I think you guys should really be thinking about is how can I display this attitude of generosity? You don't have to have a ton of money, guys. I know that for most of you, you don't own money. Like your parents give you some when it's time to pay up. But here's the thing. You can be emotionally thoughtful for people. You can be physically thoughtful for people. You can say, I, I want to be physically generous. I want to give my sisters, if you're a girl, I'm going to give my sisters in Christ beautiful, awesome, godly hugs. If you're a bro, be the bro that breaks, breaks the barrier. Don't be that one that's like, oh, I don't want to touch you because it's weird, unless you're COVID sensitive, in which case I know the season makes things complicated. But otherwise, be the bro that's willing to give the, the bro hug. Uh, you know, some people hate this, but some people love when from behind, a guy will put his hands on your shoulders and just start rubbing it. Like some, for, sometimes that feels amazing. Other times I'm creeped out. 
It's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You have to be sensitive enough to kind of read the, the situation here. The point is being generous. Generous with your time, generous with your muscles, men, generous with your words, ladies, if that's your spiritual gift, encouraging people, be generously minded. It doesn't have to be your money. If you do have money, great. Buy your bro a Chick-fil-A sandwich, but you don't have to have that. If you do have it, be generous, but be generous in all the ways that you can think of. Social, financial, spiritual, emotional, physical. Um, do they need a jacket? Um, do, do they need a friend? Maybe you see someone standing alone constantly. You could be generous with your friendship and say, I'm going to befriend that person because that person who's on my team, I presume, needs my love and attention. James 2, 15 and 16 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and when he says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Essentially, James is communicating the phrase that we all know. It's talk is cheap. That leads me to my third point here. Care enough to do something, to do something. Don't just say something, do something. Maybe tonight's a good night to practice that. Maybe tonight's a good time for you to say, okay, how can I not simply love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth? This is what it looks like to love the team, to serve the team well, to care about the needs of Christians, especially Christians if you're part of the, of the church. Okay. Now, I want to make one aside. Let me talk to you quickly about socialism, because it seems like the church is doing this, at least in this passage. They're selling everything, and they're distributing it, uh, and everyone's needs are being met. There's, there's equity all across the board. So is socialism something that God would prefer us to engage in? Socialism, then, in case you're, you're not aware, is a political and economic theory of social organization, which advocates that the means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned or regulated by the community as a whole. Okay, I'm going to give you the short answer, and I'm going to try to elaborate just a bit. This is not meant to be the primary discussion of your talk tonight, but since it's so popular right now, let me just offer a couple quick thoughts. This is different than socialism in at least three ways. First, this is done within primarily the household of faith. Uh, democratic socialism, which is popularized currently by Bernie Sanders, is something very different than what is being practiced here. This is done within a specific community with a specific purpose in mind. Two, coercion isn't, the, uh, isn't driving their sharing. No one is forcing them or demanding them to do this. In fact, God is not demanding them to do this. They're doing this out of the abundance of their love for one another. They're sharing. That's what makes this so incredibly unique is that they're doing it from a place of charity and not coercion. Democratic socialism or socialism of any form really starts out with a, a voting position but ends up becoming coerced as a means of taxation and uh, removing of goods from one to give to, the, to give to someone else who has less goods. The third way, there is individual ownership here which is fundamentally different from socialism. Remember, nothing is owned by an individual. It's owned and distributed by the community. But in this passage, you can see that these guys own their property. They're selling their goods and possessions in order to give to the needs of their brothers and sisters. And so that's what makes their sharing meaningful. It's that they have ownership and they can choose to do with it what they want. Here's again, here's the verses here. They together, that all things in common, verse 45, they were selling their possessions and their belongings. And then they distributed it. It was a matter of choice, charity. It was a means for them to love one another. Later on in chapter five, the same thing happens. Peter says to Ananias, uh, while the, verse four, while it remained unsold, the property that he sold, did it not remain in your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not in, at your disposal? In other words, this is your property, Ananias. You can choose to do with it how you will. So I don't think uh, by any stretch of the imagination that scripture supports socialism. That's my short two cents. Not the point of tonight, but I thought I'd bring it up because it does relate to the topic that we're looking at. These final few verses here, let's go through these last ones quickly. Verses 46 and 47, as we close this out here, I want to show you what happens as a result of these people living together in this way. Day by day attending the temple together and, and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So you have two day by days there. You see that? A day by day at the front and a day by day at the back. Day by day, they're attending together. They're living the life together. And day by day, God is saving people. In other words, the more they live out their Christian life, the more they live out the attractiveness of the community of faith, the more God adds to their number. People are attracted to it. People are saying, man, this is amazing. I want to be part of this. What's going on? How do I, how do I understand you people? I think verse, uh, point number three, we ought to do the same by living to make the gospel attractive to others. This is us living out our faith. This is us being open about who we are. And God does amazing things through that. As we are faithful, God faithfully adds to his church. Titus talks about this being adorning of the, the doctrine of God. So that's why I put it here. Let me give you a couple quick sub points and we're gonna call it good. You can adorn the doctrine of God, adorn the gospel, make it attractive to others by first and foremost, choosing to be the aroma of Christ day by day. And the church is not necessarily trying to do this. They're, they're being the aroma of Christ by simply living out their faith out loud. They're, they're uh, as it says here in the verse, they are breaking bread together. They are doing it with glad and generous hearts. God had done such a work in them. And by the way, if you want to know if God's worked in you, one of the telltale signs is, is gratitude, is thankfulness. It's a glad disposition. It's a happy heart. Not to say that you can't go through seasons of sadness, but God does something in you to say, man, I'm so grateful to be a Christian. I'm so grateful to be part of the family of faith. God changed them. He made them joyful. They were glad. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. God gave them a sense of gratitude. That's why they were praising God. God put something in them that caused them to say, I must praise the Lord with my life. And God, of course, created within them generous hearts. I said before, because God was so generous to them, they saw it totally inconsistent to be anything less than generous with one another. Because by the way, collectively, we are the body of Christ. The body of Christ for which he died for. Choose to be the aroma of Christ. And by the way, I'm making an allusion to 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16. Which if we had more time, we would go through that. But we're not going to do that tonight. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, I'll let you go through it yourself. Secondly, to adorn the gospel, choose to be public about your Christianity. You know, one of the things that sometimes I think I'm tempted to do, and maybe you can relate to this, is I'm tempted not to say things like praise God or thank you, Jesus, or, uh, or I'm a Christian. <laughs> you know, I, it's so easy to just kind of go throughout your day and to be undercover Christian. Because the moment you open your mouth about being a Christian, you know that you're opening up the door for trouble. Even though you're not intending that. You're opening up the door for those strange looks, especially if you say, oh, I'm a youth pastor. Oh, aren't you like 60? Like, no, I'm really young, I promise. Sometimes, guys, I get it. We're, we're tempted to be quiet about who we are in Christ. We're tempted to be ashamed of Christ because it's not popular, because people know that Christians generally are not accepting of certain things in society that are very acceptable. 
encouraging you to put your Christianity on display, to not hide your light, to let your light shine, to, uh, to be a lamp and to, be, uh, to put it on a stand. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I'm asking you to be obvious about your Christianity. I'm asking you to think critically about whether or not you're letting Christ shine through you or whether you're hiding your light under a bushel so that no one really knows. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I believe in Christ. Yes, I, I've repented of my sin and trusted, but I don't want a lot of people to know that because the second I'm outed, then they're going to start criticizing me or looking at me different. I might lose friends. I might lose opportunities that I could otherwise have. Uh, that, that's, part of the, that's part of why we need each other. There's safety here. There's a haven here. There's psychological safety here. There's a sense of connectedness that helps us to say, okay, even if the world rejects me, the body of Christ, these are my brothers and sisters. I can be okay because these are my friends. Be public about who you are in Christ, which obviously includes, but I'm going to say it anyway, share the gospel. You're back in school now, or Zool, you're back in Zool, and so maybe you don't have as much opportunity as you used to, but as the opportunities arise, A, let them know that you're a Christian. Be bold about that. Say Christian things. Where were you this weekend? Oh, I had a you know, regular weekend, or I guess now we don't. If you go to church, hopefully you're going to church on the main services. I went to church, and I learned a great thing about goodness. I had a great sermon about goodness. Be bold about who you are. Share the gospel. People need to hear it now more than ever. Share the gospel with people who desperately need to hear it. Will you be perfect at it? No, but it doesn't matter. Our playbook, we start tonight with connecting. We're connecting with one another. And what a great application to have small groups immediately after. But before we do that, I want to close out with a song. So I'm going to invite our worship team back up. I know they weren't expecting that, but I'm going to have them come back up and close the song out for us because I really want you to reflectively respond to this sermon. And I want you, unless they're not here, in which case then we won't do that. I'll sing, maybe. Kumbaya. As we close, guys, I want to encourage you. You know the value of in-person relationships, but I want you not to just value the in-person relationships. I want you to take it to the next level. This year, in your Christian life, I want you to take fellowship more seriously than you ever have. Maybe being honest. Maybe you're one of the people that posted about pasta. Maybe you need to tell people that. This is the place where you find connection, where you find safety, where you find love. At least it should be. And we can be honest that we haven't done it as well as we want to, but maybe tonight's the night we begin to start a new direction. We're honest with each other. We care for one another. We meet each other's needs because Christ has been so kind to us, so generous. I encourage you tonight. Let's pray as we sing.